I want to begin reading in Luke chapter 13, read all the way through verse 9 and prepare our hearts and minds for celebrating the Lord's Supper this morning. Luke chapter 13, verse 1 says, Now on that very occasion, there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And Jesus responded and said to them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans just because they have suffered this fate? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or do you think that those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them were worse offenders than all the other people who live in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish perish. And he began telling this parable. A man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and did not find any. And he said to the vine keeper, look, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? But he answered and said to him, Sir, leave it alone for one year, for this year too, until I dig around it, put in fertilizer, and if it bears fruit next year, fine. But if not, cut it down. You know, there are certain, there are certain phrases that you don't want to hear from your doctor. One is you don't want to hear from your doctor something like, you need heart bypass surgery. You, you need a valve replacement. You need a tumor removed. All of those sound very ominous, and they are. They're, they're very, very serious. But the unbelievable advancements in medical technology make all of those things possible. That is, you, you talk to someone that's had a heart bypass, and as ominous as it sounds and as ominous as it is, it's phenomenal that doctors and physicians and surgeons are able to do the kinds of things that they do. It's, it's a word, it's a phrase, it's a diagnosis that you don't want to hear, but when you learn that your doctor, your surgeon, your physician has the skills to do what's necessary to make it right, it brings, a, it brings a great deal of relief to you, particularly after the surgery has been successfully accomplished. Well, there's a word that people don't like to hear. It's a word that's becoming more and more hated in our culture, but it's an important word. It's a crucial word. It's a Bible word. It's the word repentance. It's a word that everyone hates, but everyone needs. You'll notice in the passage that I read just a moment ago, Jesus uses the verb repent several times. In fact, the word repent and repentance are used numerous times in the Gospel of Luke. We'll, we'll look at a few examples in just a moment. But as we think about this passage this morning, and remember, we're listening to the teaching of Jesus. Jesus is teaching the crowds. What we're talking about are not my ideas. Uh, they're not me trying to spin a, a new religion. This is Jesus teaching the crowd. 
And Luke has heard about this, and now Luke is teaching us. As Luke teaches us, we're listening in on Jesus teaching the crowds. These are the very words of Jesus. So if we have trouble with the idea of repentance, if we have trouble with the doctrine of repentance, you don't have a problem with me. You have a problem with Jesus because Jesus is the one who is teaching it. I want you to notice the first thought this morning. Jesus taught the absolute necessity of repentance. In fact, you'll notice in the very first words of the chapter, he says, now on that very occasion. As we've been studying the Gospel of Luke, I've been trying to help you see that how you read the Gospels is very important in being able to to get out of the Gospels what the author is intending to say. So when Luke says, on that very occasion, he began to teach about repentance, we need to look back, what we talked about last week, what was the occasion last week? Well, look at the final words of the previous chapter, beginning in verse 57. Jesus is telling another parable. He's talking about getting your life right with God before it's too late. Because there comes a moment when it is too late. There comes a time when the opportunity is past. So in verse 57, Jesus said, And why do you not even judge by yourselves what is right? For when you are going with your accuser to appear before the magistrate on the way, make an effort to settle with him so that he does not drag you before the judge and the judge hands you over to the officer and the officer throw you into prison. I tell you, you will not get out of there until you have paid the very last cent. Now the judge is God and the one that's being brought before the judge is you and me. And as we're on our way before God's judgment seat, we need to make amends with Jesus. We need to be made right with Jesus. We need to find salvation in Jesus. We need to put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. This morning when when Grace was being baptized, Grace is already saved. Grace is in Bible Fellowship Group with Jay Lynn, my wife. Jay Lynn just loves her. And, uh, and Grace is coming from a Presbyterian background where she was not baptized by immersion. And so Grace has come to believe in believer's baptism. She was immersed today in believer's baptism, but she didn't become a Christian today. She's already a Christian. She's not going to stand before the judgment seat that he's talking about, Jesus is talking about right here. So Jesus just finished saying, get things right with God. Put your faith and trust in Christ. That's what Luke's communicating to us. Make sure your faith and trust are in Jesus Christ because there comes a time when it's too late. You'll be thrown into prison and you will never get out. You'll be thrown into hell and you will spend eternity there. So he says, on that very occasion, when he was talking about heaven and hell, Being right with God and not being right with God, he begins to talk about the necessity, the absolute necessity of repentance if one is going to be right with God. 
Well, we might be led to believe, well, this is kind of a one-off. This is just a, an occasional single solitary reference that, that Jesus makes about repentance. You're blowing it out of proportion. You're making it too big. You're, you're placing too much significance on it. Well, let's just look back in Luke's gospel and see where that word repent or the noun repentance appears. For example, in chapter 3 and verse 3, this is what John the Baptist said. And John came into all the region around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Notice that repentance and forgiveness are intricately connected. Just a few verses beyond that, in chapter 3, verse 8, John the Baptist said this, Therefore produce fruits that are consistent with repentance. And do not start saying to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children for Abraham. One of the most arduous responsibilities for a Christian parent is to help their children understand you are not a Christian because I am a Christian. You're not a follower of Jesus because I'm a follower of Jesus. You have to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, repenting of your sins for yourself. God can raise up children of Abraham from the stones, John the Baptist says. But he says, bring forth fruit consistent with repentance. Chapter 5, verse 32 Jesus said, I have not come to call the righteous to repentance, but sinners. Now, when he says righteous, he's speaking tongue-in-cheek. He's talking about the self-righteous. There's nothing you can do for self-righteous people. There's nothing you can say to a self-righteous person that would cause them to come to the conclusion, I need to put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. I need to repent of my sin. So Jesus came to preach the gospel to those who knew they needed a Savior. I have not come to call the righteous, the self-righteous, to repentance, but sinners to repentance. Luke chapter 10, verse 13, Jesus said, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles that occurred in you had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. He said, if, if Sodom and Gomorrah, which we, which we use as a kind of a metaphor, as an analogy for the degradation of society, if they had seen... What, what the people in Capernaum or Chorazin had seen, they would have repented of their sins. They would have turned to God if they had seen what those who saw Jesus performing miracles saw. In chapter 15, Jesus tells three parables, parable about a, a lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son. Verses 7 and 10 say the very same thing. Jesus says at the end of the parable, I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people. And again, he's speaking tongue in cheek. You could say self-righteous people. 
over, over 99 self-righteous people who have no need of repentance. So notice the idea of repentance. Every time a sinner repents, putting their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, jo there is joy in the presence of God. The angels of God celebrate. The Son of God celebrates. There's joy in heaven. But notice the idea of repentance. In chapter 16 and verse 30, Jesus is telling a parable about a rich man and a poor man. And in, in the ancient world, in first century Judaism, many people believed that if you were rich, God blessed you, and if you were poor, God has cursed you. If you were blessed, you were right with God, and if you were poor, you were cursed by God. And in this particular parable, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus is just the opposite. The rich man goes to hell, and the poor man is taken to heaven. But in, in the parable, the rich man in hell is giving orders to Abraham in heaven. It's a, it's a parable. But he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, he says, send someone to my brother's. Send someone from the dead to my brother so they don't go to hell. Send someone to my brother so that they see that they need to repent of their sins. He said, if someone goes to them from the, uh, goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And Jesus says, no. Even somebody coming from the dead can't convince a person who refuses to turn from their sin to turn from their sin. Listen to chapter 17, verses 3 and 4. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. You can, it's like Jesus is taking the nail of repentance and he's driving it in with a hammer, with comment after comment after comment. It isn't some right-wing fundamentalistic fanatic that's talking about repentance. It's none other than Jesus himself saying over and over and over again, there's a need for people to repent of their sin. Look with me in chapter 24 and verse 47. This is the gospel message that the church is to proclaim. And that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in His name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. So notice again the connection between repentance and forgiveness. Mark tells us in Mark chapter 1 verse 15 that Jesus came into Galilee preaching faith and repentance, believing the gospel and turning from one's sin. So the very first thing I, I, I want to drive home is the absolute necessity of repentance. The second thing I want us to notice is a parable teaching the absolute necessity of repentance in verses 6 through 9. He, he paints a picture. He tells a story. He, he describes a, a fig tree that is not bearing fruit. The fig tree represents a person. It's a person whose life isn't bearing fruit. It's not that it hasn't had opportunity. It's not that it hasn't been nurtured and, and, uh, and treated well, but there's no fruit. It's a, it's a useless fig tree. Fig trees were planted in order to produce fruit. John the Baptist said, bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. 
So the owner of the land says, chop it down, cut it down, throw it away. It's taking up soil. It's good for, it's good for nothing. And so then the response is, give it a little bit more time. Give it one more year. Let me fertilize it, dig around it. Let me, let me see if I can't bring a little bit of life to it. Let me see if there might not be able the potential to bring some fruit from it. But if after a, one more year, there's no fruit, then we'll, we'll cut it down. So many times I will talk to people who will tell me I'm a Christian, I just don't go to church. I'm a Christian, I, I, I know I ought to read my Bible. Uh, I'm a Christian and my lifestyle isn't commensurate with what I know the Bible teaches. And, and my question to them is, and I try to be kind about it, is you're foolish to think you're a Christian. Now, maybe you are a Christian, but you have no proof of it. You have no fruit of it. If you have no fruit, then what's the proof? Well, you see, when I was seven years old, I walked down the aisle and the pastor told me I was a Christian. So you're basing your salvation on what someone told you when you're seven, and there's absolutely no evidence that what they told you is true when you're 39? 42, 26, 14. Forgiveness is intricately connected to repentance. Faith and repentance are two sides to the same coin. Repentance is the, is, is what, is the doorway into the Christian life. Faith and repentance, two sides of the same coin. If you put your faith in Christ, you will repent of your sins. You'll never repent of your sins without putting your faith in Christ. It's the doorway into salvation. But it's also the means by which we continue to grow spiritually. Repentance isn't something we do once and for all the moment we're saved. Now, we're not re-saved. We're not saved over and over and over again. We're saved the moment we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, turning our lives over to Him. From that moment on, we're saved. For the rest of our life, we're growing and maturing in our faith, and one part of that is repenting of our sin, because none of us are perfect. None of us will ever be perfect. None of us go a single day without sinning. And so the Christian life is all about repentance. So how do we repent? All right, what are the steps? What's the process? Sometimes it's much easier than we think, and sometimes we think it's so complicated that we, that we really don't know where to start. Well, let me just walk you through a few thoughts about repentance. First, repentance begins with a genuine understanding that my sin is first and foremost against God. I might have snapped at my wife and yelled, yelled at the dog, but first and foremost, my sin is against God. And repentance begins when I realize that what I've done has stepped over the line. I've transgressed the law of God, the will of God. And so sin, repentance begins with understanding that my sin is first and foremost against God. Second, re repentance requires me to ask God for forgiveness. I need, to, I need to say to God, God, I've sinned. 
I've spoken unkindly to my wife. Please forgive me of my sin. But repentance thirdly demands that I turn from that sin. It's not enough for me just to say, forgive me for for speaking unkindly to my wife. It it means that I have a determination that I'm going to fight against it. Now, we may do it many more times, and we probably will do it many more times. Speak unkindly to our wife, to our husband, or think think a thought we shouldn't think. Perform an act we shouldn't perform. But repentance is saying, I'm going to fight against it. I am determined to to do what I need to do to overcome it. So I I turn from that sin with a determination to fight against it. Then if I commit it again, I say to God again, Father, forgive me. I spoke unkindly to my wife. Please give me the grace, the strength to fight against that. Fourth, receive God's forgiveness. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Forgive, receive God's forgiveness. Fifth, I I then realize that, or I I need to realize that almost every sin against God is also a, a sin against another person. So let's take the example of me speaking unkindly to my wife. So I've said it to God. In my heart, I'm determined I'm going to fight against it. I'll probably do it again. I'll probably need to, not probably, I will go to God and I will confess it again. I will redouble my efforts by the grace of God for the glory of God to fight against it. But I haven't repented of my sin if I haven't said to my wife, please forgive me, Jaylen. I shouldn't have said what I said Please forgive me. Repentance requires me to make amends for those that I have wronged. It's not just me and God. It's me and, in this situation, and my wife and God. So I ask that person to forgive me for sinning against them. And then I pursue holiness seeking to bear fruit in my life. And so, repentance is a process. When was the last time you consciously repented of a sin? If you and I want to walk with Jesus, and I believe you want to walk with Him as much as I do, I have to repent a lot, and I have a little inclination that you do as well. And so repentance is a part of the Christian experience. It's a part of the Christian life. I I mentioned just a moment ago about uh, maybe speaking unkindly to, to Jay Lynn, speaking harsh or stern to her in in a in a well, it's always inappropriate for me to speak to her that way. The Bible says that the fruit of the Spirit is love. So we're thinking about repentance. We're thinking about living out the Christian life. I'm using the example of me not speaking kindly to my wife. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Well, what is love? Love is patient. 
Am I patient with her? Love is kind. Am I kind to her? Love is not jealous. Love doesn't brag. It isn't arrogant. It doesn't act unbecomingly or disgracefully. It doesn't seek its own benefit. That is, I am married to her from God's perspective for me to serve her, not for her to serve me. Well, think about it now. When was the last time you repented of sin and asked your spouse to forgive you? Your children will learn what it means to ask forgiveness and repent of their sins by you asking them to forgive you and you repenting of maybe not disciplining them, speaking to them in the way that you should. Maybe you've not disciplined them regularly and and they're out of control. That's on you. And you might have to go back and say, listen, Daddy, Daddy has been lazy in raising you. Would you forgive me? Because it's going, to be, it's going to be changes. We're going to have to work together in this. I've allowed you to become who you are as a 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13-year-old. I've let you become who you are. But I want you to know I'm repenting of my laziness. I'm sorry, I'm, I, I'm going to have to make a change about the cell phone. You're not going to be able to have the cell phone in your room at night for hours on end. I, I, I did that to you. I, I ask you to forgive me for that. And you repent of it. There'll be a little bit to work through, but that's a part of parenting, isn't it? Repentance is a part of the Christian life. Repentance is the entryway into salvation. You know, repentance is the door that we walk through into the Savior's presence, and it is, the, it is a life that we live until we see the Savior's face. So it's the door we walk through into His presence, and it's the life we live until we see His face. There's nothing to be ashamed of. It's true of all of us. The Lord's Supper is a reminder to us that Jesus has not left us to do this on our own. He's given us means of grace, the Word of God, congregational worship. The Word of God, as we read, the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to work in our lives as we're singing one to another and we're hearing one another sing The Lord is using it to build us up in our faith. He's given us many means by which He gives us grace to enable us to be people of repentance. One of those is the Lord's Supper. When the Lord's Supper is appropriately taken, we are spiritually strengthened. It's a means of grace. It's not like some hocus-pocus. It's the Spirit of God using the means of God to strengthen the people of God. So when we take the Lord's Supper, it's a, it's a reminder of what He did for us on the cross. It's a reminder that He's coming again for us at His second coming. But from there to there, it strengthens us as we've entered through the door of repentance into His presence 
until the day that we are in His, uh, we see His face. In just a moment, I'm going to ask our deacons to come forward, and Pastor Eliff and Heinerman are going to come forward and lead us through this time. We want to remind you that if you are gluten intolerant, you have celiac, there's, there's any way that we can help with that at this table back here while I'll be standing, uh, I'll be my pleasure to serve you uh, gluten-free, um, a gluten-free uh, element that, uh, that would be best for you. So please don't hesitate. Be, be embarrassed to get up and walk, walk back there. I'm going to ask you if you'll join me in prayer. Our deacons will come forward and pastors Elif and Heinerman. Father in heaven, we thank you today for this single service celebration where we get to see some faces we may not ordinarily get to see. But even more importantly, Father, we thank you that we're able to join our voices together and enter into your presence and do what the angels of heaven are doing 24-7. Holy, 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 they cry out, is the Lord God Almighty, who is and who was and who is to come. And so, Father, we pray that as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper, even in these moments, if there, are, if there is sin in our lives that we need to confess and repent of, bring it to our hearts and minds in these moments and give us the grace to turn from our sin and fight against it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.